in his recent book entitled Letters to the American Church, Christian author Eric Metaxas points out that the now deceased Chuck Colson was fond of quoting the Dutch statesman Abraham Kuyper, who was also a Christian, where Kuyper would say that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry mine. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. This morning we're going to do something a little bit different. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I want to preach a message to you this morning that I have entitled, Now Appoint for Us a King. And I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to read this passage in its entirety, and we will be looking at all of these verses this morning. And I'll begin in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. We also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy and authoritative word. Please be seated as we ask the Lord to give us guidance by the Holy Spirit this morning. Father, we come before you in prayer to study your word, the most sacred of all activities that we will participate in this week. And we are doing it at the beginning of the week to hear your authority, to hear your truth, to hear your Holy Spirit speak to us concerning the political realities of our day, the cultural battles of our day, but most of all for us to examine our own hearts, to humble ourselves before you, to pray that we might repent, to pray that you might bless us, Lord, as we seek your face, Lord, as we seek your glory and your kingship in all the earth, beginning with our nation, but really beginning in our own homes and our church so that it can influence this nation for your glory. So be with us during this time as we study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the founding fathers of the United States John Adams once said that our Constitution presupposes a moral and religious people and that it is wholly unfit for any other. Our Constitution presupposes the base of morality, that is, the Bible's morality. But secularism is an attempt to have an orderly society without reference to God. It is the idea, secularism is, that we can understand what human rights are without knowing what a human being actually is or failing to define what a human being is or for that matter what a male is or what a female is or what marriage is. But taking God out of the national conversation as secularists are trying to do does not merely result in chaos or merely a bad contradiction. Such results not in, in, a, in a neutral society with a neutral government, but one that moves from God-centeredness to godlessness or the sense of being absence from the true God. It's not godless in another sense, however, because the pagan god of secularism, that is the state, takes over to replace the true God. In his recent book entitled Letters to the American Church, Christian author Eric Metaxas points out that the now deceased Chuck Colson was fond of quoting the Dutch statesman Abraham Kuyper, who was also a Christian, where Kuyper would say that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry mine. And the reason that Colson quoted Kuyper really goes all the way back to the 1960s in America where the idea began to circulate that our faith needed to stay in the church um, and stay away from the public square. Two things occurred in the courts and in legislation. Number one, in the 1950s, then-Senator LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, introduced an amendment in the United States Tax Code Code prohibiting churches and any other nonprofit organizations from publicly endorsing any political candidate on the threat of the removal of their tax exempt status. That was the first thing that happened. And then in the 1960s, of course, you're aware of the fact that the Supreme Court removed prayer from the public schools. Such an action, by the way, was based on a cultural trend that misinterpreted 
Jefferson's statement on the wall of separation between church and state. Famously, one pastor nicknamed this the naked public square. But our founding fathers did not want faith not to influence society. They were simply protecting the people from an onerous government establishing a national church. They were not trying to strip the public square entirely of faith. In fact, it's impossible to have a naked public square because secularism has simply clothed the so-called naked public square neutrality and that myth with the clothes of secularism and ungodliness. As Metaxas says, and I quote, it must be said emphatically that to secularize the public square is actually to impose upon it a religion of another kind, albeit in a way that very cleverly and dishonestly pretends not to be religious at all. And what is the result? Well, here is the result. Christians and churches have privatized their faith. Did you hear me on that? Christians and churches have privatized their faith. They've emphasized everything from small group Bible studies and personal pietism and theological novelty without an application in the public square resulting in a weak and anemic church. Because we have believed the lie that we have no voice in the public square. What did Jesus have to do with politics anyway? Marriage and the sanctity of life, those are civil issues, not biblical. Leave it to the courts. The church and Christians need to stay out. But is this really what the founders intended? Number one, and more importantly, is this sort of position really what honors the Lord? Metaxas rightly argues no. Metaxas, in his book, argues this is dangerous and damning. He decries the cowardice to speak out, which masquerades itself as godly meekness. He says that we are all required by God to speak out against the evils of abortion, that is, defending the unborn, the lies of cultural Marxism, and the battle against globalist tyranny, which he says crushes human freedom. He then goes on to list four errors that have inculcated and swallowed, have been inculcated and swallowed by American Christians. I won't list all of them, but number three on the list is this commandment in the church, be ye not political. Metaxas argues that that is dangerous, and that is a play that was already ran by the Lutheran church in the 1930s in Germany. The church was silent at the killing of six million European Jews, which reveals to us that when the church is silent, when the church says, be ye not political, it results in genocide. It results in the removal of political and social and religious freedom. Will the church today turn its heads from the countless children being murdered inside of the womb? What is really the difference between the guilt of the United States today and the guilt of the Lutheran church in Germany in the 1930s? One big difference, says Metaxas, is that Germany struggled with hyper-nationalism, ecclesiocracy, you could call it, while we struggle with anti-nationalism, that is, people protesting the national anthem and all the rest. 
But at its heart, we are guilty because of our silence. And what is the big takeaway? Well, it's the taking away of our freedom, the taking away of life itself, metaphorically symbolized in the fact that lives are being taken by those who can't even speak up for themselves. A literal reality, which is really a cultural metaphor, abortion is, for what the government is trying to do in the West, and that is take away our freedom. Thank God, Roe has been overturned, but this is only a partial victory. What about the pandemic restrictions? The taking away of our freedom, which, by the way, I'll remind you, the government is yet to apologize for. You see, the central issue is freedom. The central issue is freedom. Is freedom a biblical principle? Well, let me quote another Christian author, Doug Wilson, from his new book, Just Released, Mere Christendom. He says this, and I quote, The public square cannot be neutral. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar isn't. If Jesus is Lord, the liberties of those who don't believe in him are far more secure than the liberties of everybody in the hands of a Caesar who answers to no one above him. The liberties of the individual are too precious to be left in the hands of a civic agnosticism. He goes on to answer why. In secular societies, overreach is not a possibility, but rather a necessity. By definition, if there is no God above the state, then the state has become God, the point past which there is no appeal. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If the Spirit is exiled, how can we still have what only He can give? End quote. If you remember the war for independence, or as some call it, the American Revolution, It was called in England by some the Presbyterian Revolt because it was instigated and influenced by Christians. Or have we forgotten during the 1700s that preachers boldly from their pulpits spoke out clearly against King George III's tyranny? Metaxas says, and I quote, Was it not their voices that helped us to gain our freedoms, create a constitution in which all of our freedoms were enshrined in a way that has been the envy of the world ever since? End quote. And I think he's right. With all of that by way of introduction, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And in the context, this is really a turning point for Israel's history from judgeship to kingship. As we'll see, their desire for a king was ultimately a rejection of God's kingship. Things have gone, comparatively speaking, well. The period of the judges was a period in which man did right in his own eyes, but God had raised Samuel up, and he was a godly man. But now with this request made to Samuel by the elders of Israel, by the leaders, God gives a picture to us of what human kingship, that is, all governments in the world, ultimately lead to, and the picture is dismal. Because of the depravity of man, there will be a demonstration of demonic tyranny. That is what God says. In fact, God borrows the reality of what is going to happen to Israel because they request a king from the tyrannical excesses that characterized Israel's neighbors who all had kings. So please note, the state becoming a god or acting as if they are the god is the great temptation due to the depravity of man. That is what we learn from this passage. Nations 
self-identify through their kings, through their presidents, through their prime ministers, through their parliament, through their congress. They self-identify as God himself. And they try to raise themselves up over God like Nimrod, like the Tower of Babel. Like King Nebuchadnezzar in Isaiah 14, I will ascend, I will ascend, I will ascend, which by the way, Isaiah 14 has a deeper meaning, referring to Lucifer, who said he would ascend over the power of God in heaven, and God threw him out of heaven. Tyrannical governments can mimic God, they can self-identify, but God will expose them. We live in a culture, beloved, where you can self-identify to be whatever you want to be. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that someday the government of these United States could self-identify as being your God. If not directly, they're already doing it implicitly. Now we still have to believe that governments are instituted by God. Romans 13 calls them a minister or a deacon or a steward, a servant, delegated power given to them by God. But how are we as Christians to view tyrannical governments? How are we to identify tyrannical governments? Should we remain silent? Be ye not political? Or should we speak out? Does Scripture speak about these issues? Well, I think 1 Samuel 8 helps us. Prior to Israel's monarchy, Israel, as one commentator says, was an austere Republican government with an invisible and almighty chief, that is God, presiding over it. But now with this move for an earthly king, they were giving up their heavenly king. From this impending decay, says one commentator, and ruin, Israel was rescued by the splendid patriotism and the fervent religious zeal of Samuel, under whose wise rule Israel as a nation once more returned to the pure holy worship of God. But now they're going to throw all of that away for a king. God's criticism, his negatively speaking about Israel's desire for a king, is not, listen to this, because he despised the concept of a monarchy. No, God had actually said that Israel was going to have a king at some point. But it's because the elders were impatient. The elders were taking Samuel's leadership for granted. The elders could not see that God had blessed them apart from a king, but really, they were unable to see the trouble that a king would bring. If you remember, all the way back um, in the book of of Judges, if you turn back with me to Judges chapter 8 for a moment, Gideon, we read in verses 22 and 23 that the men of Israel said to him, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson, also for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon at least understood in the period of the judges that God was king. Any sort of king that they had was to rule over Israel, but be under God, one nation under God. And this means, therefore, that the king, and that is God as the king, was over heaven And earth, Jesus even told us to pray this way, for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God has imperial, universal authority. And this means that he is king over all, 
And he is king over all because he possesses all authority. For the new covenant, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth. That includes his authority over the civil governments has been given to me. God possesses all authority. Gideon understood that. I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He understood that God possesses authority eternally so. Exodus 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. He recognized that God possesses authority eternally so and protectively so. Exodus 15, 6, your right hand, O Lord, gracious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. He understood that God possesses authority nationally so. Deuteronomy 33, 5, thus the Lord will become king When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together, from top to bottom, all of the tribes, God was king nationally over them. God possessed authority eternally so, protectively so, nationally so, and prophetically and internationally so in Genesis chapter 17 when God told Abraham that from him would come one who would be a ruler, not just of one nation, but of many nations in covenant with God. So in a nutshell, proper governing authority comes down to properly recognizing God's authority. And it matters not what period of history you live in, the Old Testament or the New Testament. Jesus Christ is ultimately the culmination of all the kings that were ever prophesied in the Old Testament. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God takes the opportunity at Israel's request for a king to warn them of the potential danger and even the tendency of the governments of man to usurp God's authority, swapping it for its own. And as such, we find three lessons for our own day regarding civil authorities as instituted by God. So you can ask yourselves the questions, what are the standards? What are the expectations? What are the potential actions? What is the attitude that I should have as a Christian? It's all here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Three lessons, the path to the request, the pain in the request, and the punishment for the request. First of all, notice with me from verses 1 through 9, what I want to call the path to the request. And there are really three factors that led to Israel's request for a king. It begins with corruption. Notice with me in verse 1, when when Samuel became old, rather, he made his son judges His sons judges over Israel. Samuel, of course, was a child in tabernacle service under Eli when he was called by God to be a prophet around 12 years old. But now, as verse 1 says, he is old. And so as Samuel waxes old, so too does the error of the judges and the new age of the monarchy is on the horizon. But not before, as verse 1 says, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, that was a problem because notice verse 2 says... The name of his firstborn son was Joel. That means the Lord is God. That's a good name for your son. And the name of the second, Abijah, another good name, which means my father is Lord. But the rest of verse 2 says they were judges in Beersheba. That would have been about 57 miles south, southwest of Ramah where Samuel lived. But verse 3 tells us that his sons did not live up to their names. 
The Lord is God, my Father is Lord. They did not walk in their father's footsteps, verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his, that is Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. They took a different path than their father. They did not walk in his ways, and they were marked by this triplet of ungodliness regarding political corruption. Number one, dishonest gain. Number two, they took bribes, as verse three says. And number three, they perverted justice. In other words, here's the picture. They used their office, their political office for self-enrichment, which in turn affected their on-the-job performance at being good judges. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 16, Moses condemned this sort of behavior. He said, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the calls of the righteous. In other words, you can't be a good judge. You will be blinded. You won't see straight. Proverbs 17, 23, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. There's that language of perverting justice again. Or Proverbs 15, 27, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Dishonest gain, taking bribes, perverting justice. This is what his sons did. Now, Samuel remained the primary judge of Israel all the days of his life. 1 Samuel 17, 15 tells us, But in his old age, he appoints these sons to help bear the load. There was no issue with having a hereditary judgeship. In fact, what better way than to raise up your sons in your own tradition to take over your job, sort of like a family trade. The problem wasn't that. The problem was the character of these young men, because instead of treading in the ways of their father, they trampled underfoot the path their dad took, and it was one of corruption. They had an eye to the bribe, as Matthew Henry says, not to God's law. They did not live up to their names, and although things probably started off well, I mean, Samuel would have had high hopes in naming them the names that he named them. But the Lord was not Joel's God. Abijah's father was not the Lord. Their God was their belly. That is their lusts. And I would just ask you this morning, how much more punishment for the children of the covenant who trample underfoot the name of Christ? As the book of Hebrews says, here are these two covenant children who had the visionary of their father to be these great judges, and they squandered all of that. Covenant children walking away from the faith. Henry Bullinger interestingly says that Samuel was judged for 38 years after Saul's anointing. That tells us that Samuel had plenty of years to continue being a good judge. There was nothing wrong with his character. In fact, when he anointed David, he was 86 and lived to be 98, according to Bullinger. But here the elders want to change. This is a foolish one at that. Probably confronting Samuel at his own house. We continue to read in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Behold, you are old, not really that old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Hauntingly so, Samuel had turned out to be a lot like Eli, except for the fact that Eli was ungodly, Samuel was godly, 
Um, Eli was aware of his son's wickedness. I don't think Samuel was. The distance between Ramah and Beersheba being such that he was really unaware of the wickedness that was going on. And he was really humbled by this. He, he agreed that his sons were wicked. He had no problem with that. But the key is the reasoning of the elders wanting a king instead of judges. Notice it at the end of verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. Notice it. Like all the nations. Underscore that. Like all the nations. You see their reasoning was not too dissimilar from progressive secularists of our day. Progressive secularists, what do they want? They want bigger government, right? They want more laws to curb corruption. Well, that's exactly what these elders want. But for ethnic Israel, it was worse. They were exchanging the unique status of God reigning over them directly for an earthly king like all the other nations. They obviously, therefore, did not realize what they were asking for, and what they were asking for was trouble. Because the second factor leading Israel through her elders to request a king was not only corruption, but supplication. We see this in verse 6. Samuel was a godly man. He knows he must take this to the Lord. So we read, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. It displeased him, but his displeasure was rooted in their discontentment. In other words, I don't think that he was personally offended. They pointed out the wickedness of his sons. He admitted that. And I don't think that he was personally um, at odds with the fact that they were showing ingratitude because they essentially wanted to remove him as judge, saying that his position wasn't important or that he was too old to be a judge. No, the displeasure of verse 6 is a displeasure that Samuel had because this dishonored God. He was displeased because the request dishonored God. They did not want, listen to this, a prophet with a mantle. They wanted a king in a robe. Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prays. And Samuel's supplication to the Lord is indicative of the fact he was a godly man. He wanted to do what the Lord wanted him to do. But this path to Israel's request for a king was prompted by corruption, which led to supplication. But now we see God's conclusion on the matter in verses 7 through 9. Notice verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, This is stunning. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Several really interesting facets to God's conclusion. First of all, as we read here, he tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people. By the way, that's repeated again in verse 9. Now obey their voice. Again in verse 22, obey their voice, make them a king. Vox populi, the voice of the people. Why would God allow the voice of the people? Well, because God had planned in the past, and God had actually told them in Deuteronomy that Israel would have a king. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But notice the second interesting facet is that he also tells Samuel, God does, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That was the reason. This really runs parallel to Jesus' words to the disciples in Luke 10, the one who hears you hears me, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In other words, he's telling Samuel... 
that they've really rejected me, they've rejected my word, they've rejected my timing, they've rejected my ways. By the way, Samuel was not just a judge, he was also a prophet, the first of the prophets after Moses, and although he wasn't perfect and certainly had made grave mistakes, the period of the judges was much better under Samuel. Years of faithful service, and so God is telling Samuel, you have been faithful, you have done your task. He had successfully removed the images of the Canaanite deities, the Baal and the Ashtoreth. Repentance had prevailed in the land. Uh, But 1 Samuel 7 records that with the leadership of Samuel, the Israelites had victory over the Philistines. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. He was a great leader. And God had forced the Philistines to abandon the ark they had stolen, but unfortunately it had remained for 20 years in Abinadab's house. So with no possible successor because his sons were corrupt, no central shrine for worship, the Israelites feeling the threat and the heat of the Philistines, they clamor to have a king. Yet in spite of this, The rejection of Samuel was not really a rejection of Samuel. It was a rejection of God. It was a rejection of the God who had promised to protect them and go into battle for them and fight their battles. So really, this judgment on Israel was not an indictment on Samuel's leadership. It was on the people for being foolish. But third... God tells Samuel that the people had a bad pattern of disobeying and rejecting him. Here is the evidence, verse 8. Look at your Bibles. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. In other words, Samuel, you are not the problem. Your sons may be the problem, but you are not the problem. Israel is the problem. Hosea thirteen eleven. I gave you a king in my anger. That's what God says. I gave you a king in my anger. Samuel stood in a long line of God's leaders being rejected by God's people out of ingratitude. Israel had taken both their personal and national redemption for granted, hadn't they? Verse 8 is telling us they had a pattern of rejecting the one true God for false gods. They had a pattern of rejecting good leaders for bad ones. In fact, in Samuel's farewell address, in chapter 12, he calls their request for a king wickedness in the sight of the Lord. I gave you a king in my anger, Hosea 13, 11. And Samuel confirms that this is wickedness. But the final interesting facet to God's conclusion on this matter, which is absolutely stunning, involves a warning that Samuel must give the people. Notice verse 9. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Underscore that phrase, the ways of the king. The Hebrew word ways is mishpat. It literally could be rendered judgment or decision or even custom. What are the judgments, decisions, customs of the king? Well, back in verse 3, it says that Samuel's sons took bribes and perverted justice. Guess what? That's the same Hebrew word, mishpat. Perverted judgment. What God is saying in verse 9, therefore, 
Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the mishpat of the king. Show them the perverted justice of the king they will get. Perverted justice means an abuse of power by the state. Reinforced, by the way, the end of verse 9. Who shall, what does it say? Reign over them. I thought God was to reign over them. God tells Samuel, he will reign over you. In despotic fashion, with abusive power. You see, what God is telling Samuel, and this is why his conclusion on the matter is going ahead and listening to the voice of the people, is that there will be a difference between the way God rules and the way a state of tyranny rules. And this will be a sense of poetic justice. They will get exactly what they have asked for. A king like the nations. He'll put a heavy yoke around their necks. He will use arbitrary power, a law unto himself, like all the neighboring kings. Here's the irony. Just as during the days of the judges, the people did right in their own eyes, so too in the days of the kings will the kings do what is right in their own eyes. They will not listen to the law of God. Matthew Henry says, and I quote, Those that submit to the government of the world and the flesh are too plainly... Um, what hard masters they are and what a tyranny the dominion of sin is. And yet they will exchange God's government for this tyranny of the flesh. In other words, this is a secular state ruling with the tyranny of their own ethics. This is not carnal justice or wisdom that God wants this, God wants not what is carnal, but what is godly, rather. That, that is really, I think, folks, the warning for us today. Anytime a nation seeks to have leaders that are a law unto themselves, it results in tyranny. Douglas Wilson says, again in his book, Mere Christendom, that secularism is a form of relativism. And what he means by that is that if everything is relative, that is, there is no final authority, that means all religions are equal, all morality is equal, there is no Bible to tell us what to do, this reduces morality defined then by the state so that the secular schema is that sins are the same thing as crimes. The state determines what is right And what is wrong? It is a sin for you not to wear a mask. It is a sin for you to leave your home. It it is a sin for you to call out homosexuality. It is a sin for you to speak about God in the public square. Politically correct crimes. Douglas Wilson says, and I quote, Secularism is relativistic of necessity, because all societies reflect the nature and attributes of their God. If man is God, as he is in secularism, then the ethics of that society will reflect the nature of man. But man changes all the time, Wilson says. He is unstable. He is like water. Secular ethics is relativistic because man, the God of the system, is himself relative. He is relative to his genetics, his environment, his upbringing. Upbringing. He says whatever comes into his head and whatever comes into his head becomes law, at least for the time being, end quote. That is another way of saying that morality will change because the state determines what the law is and what crimes are. And as a nation, one nation we have said that is under God 
we like Israel have asked for tyranny by voting who we have voted into office. The parallels are shocking. But if verses 1 through 9 give us the path to the request, notice with me in verses 10 through 18 the pain that is in the request. Samuel returns to the elders to give them God's word on the matter, to tell them, as verse 9 says, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And I can mark verses 10 through 18 by one word, and it is the word oppression. The king, or for us in our context, the state, will rule the people if he is not held in check by God's ways. If he chooses to rule with his ways and his laws and his theology. First of all, Samuel tells them that he will rule tyrannically. These verses repeat, verses 10 and the beginning of verse 11, phrases of verse 9. Notice verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Very descriptive. Again, repeating uh, the words of verse 9, the king who shall reign over you. The very description of the king is, is a description of tyranny. A loss of freedom. That's the point. The result of denouncing the lordship of the one true God always results in tyranny. The state. The king will reign over you. To copy the language of verse 9 and the language of verse 11. This is what we have today in our own country. This is in fact what we have all over the West. But what is God's ideal? Well, it's summed up in one verse tucked away in Psalm 47 and verse 8. Here it is. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. That is God's will. But they... Israel was willing to exchange what one commentator calls, and you've got to love his language, they exchanged their republican freedom for the condition of subjection to a sovereign. Unbelievable. By the way, contrast this scene now of tyranny. He will rule tyrannically. Contrast that with the way 1 Samuel opened when Hannah... That godly woman asked God for a son to bless her people. That was a godly request that God would give to her a son that would bless her people. And now the people are asking for a king that will oppress the people. An unbelievable contrast. Think about the change they were asking for. Theirs was an administration of government that went by the slogan, thus saith the Lord. But now it's being transitioned by their request to an administration that will operate according, the, according to thus saith a false god, a king, or for our context, the state. But in the pain that they will receive, Samuel doesn't only tell them by the words of God that this king will rule tyrannically. What specifically does this look like? Well, it means he will rule not only tyrannically, but also tactically. We see this in the second half of verse 11 going through verse 13. One could say, let me put it to you this way, militarily or globally. He will have a lust for conquering and he will use his subjects to conquer. This begins with the conscription of recruits, soldiers, as verse 11 and 12 suggest, and servants, as the end of verse 12 and verse 13 suggest, soldiers and servants 
Males and females, sons and daughters. Notice the comprehensive nature of the takeover. Soldiers, verse 11. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Uh, Chariots were a symbol of status. And there were front runners, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, all the nations around them had these men front runners to run before the chariots. But as verse 12 says, not only will it involve this conscription of sons to be runners and horsemen, but verse 12, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of 50. What is this? Well, this is simply denoting the fact he will have a huge standing army. And by the way, notice the language of verse 11, he will Take, verse 12, he will appoint for himself. This is all about him, the state. The end of verse 12, some to plow his ground. Now we're moving from soldiers to servants. And some to reap his harvest. Some to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. This is what the state will do. They will take your sons from you. Verse 13, making soldiers and servants, but also your daughters. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. These would be used at the king's service. Perfumers, cooks, and bakers. This describes oppression by a government, not a foreign government, but Domestic oppression. Let me ask you a question. The secular state today fits this bill, does it not? Our sons and daughters catechized in secular education of the state's pagan ideology in the public schools. Sons and daughters not seeing the light of day or barely seeing it before they're slaughtered at abortion mills. Sons and daughters bloodied by doctors to have some sort of sex change operation. They have taken our sons and daughters. The secular state has taken our sons and daughters and they have given us nothing. That is the language of this passage. They take what they want for themselves. They take your sons. They don't give anything to you. They take life. They take freedom. Our sons are taken as soldiers and servants, trained in universities to be brainwashed to worship the state. Our daughters are taken away to the same universities to be brainwashed, to cook and to serve those not of her own household. Women no longer want to give themselves to their husband and children. They want to give themselves to a career. What is that? The brainwashing of the state. The secular state rules. To take, not to give. That is oppression by nature. And here we have in verses 10 through 18 really a pathology of all governments that reject God. It comes down to two things. It's either Christ or Caesar. Christ or chaos. The Lord God or the Lord state. The second Adam or Joe Biden. God's laws or the Supreme Court's laws. But Samuel isn't done. Not only will this pain involve the fact that he will rule tyrannically and tactically or militarily, but third, he will rule territorially. Verse 14, 
He will take, there's that language again, the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. What? No respect for private property and ownership? The government says what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. Because all oppressive governments are parasitic by nature. They operate according to taking, not giving. And they don't take the worst. Notice they take the best. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields, vineyards, orchards. Give them to his servants. This is personal property seized. Which, by the way, you might not look at it this way, but Scripture tells us that personal property and your ownership of that is a God-given right. Ezekiel 46, 18, The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. In fact, the commandment, thou shalt not steal, doesn't even make sense apart from the fact that your neighbor has something that he owns that he has a right to own. And Scripture always speaks about the ownership of things ultimately by God. Deuteronomy 10.14, God owns everything. But Deuteronomy 8.18 tells us that God gives us the power to secure our wealth so that we have a right as individuals to own and keep what is ours. No such principle of respecting private property is followed by governments of oppression. You want an example? Ahab broke the tenth commandment by coveting Naboth's vineyard. He wanted what was not his, and he thought he had the power to do that because he was king. Exodus 18.21 lays down a qualification basic to holding political office. Fear God, love God, hate covetousness. But again, note, it's the best of your fields and vineyards. Wow. Wow. Think of the federal government, their use of tax money, their wastefulness of spending, their inflated budget, their debt. Isn't this the opposite of Romans 13? The government is to be a minister for our good, not our bad, not for evil. They are to be deacons, they are to be ministers for our good, not for the good of themselves. But notice the end of verse 14, it's an ominous warning They take the best, notice this, and give them to his servants. Can you say redistribution? The governments that God wants don't take what is yours and give it to those that don't deserve it. First of all, that doesn't help the people who receive it. It just enables them to have generations of people that don't work and get in trouble. You see that all over the cities of the United States, the inner cities. Perhaps worse, governments take our dignity, our reputations, our jobs, and tell us that we have to pay reparations. To those labeled oppressed, yeah, because God, oops, I mean the state said they are oppressed, so you have to give them an apology. There is a sense in which taxes are biblical. We are to pay Our taxes. Jesus said that we are. But taxes become theft when the king or the state desires to replace what is reasonable with that which is unreasonable and wasting the money. Augustine tells the story 
about the time a pirate was captured and brought before Alexander the Great. The pirate asked why he was called a pirate because of what he stole from ships when Alexander the Great was doing the same thing in principle to other countries, and yet Alexander the Great was called an emperor, not a pirate. Pretty good point. An oppressive government will cause pain. He will rule tyrannically. He will rule tactically. He will rule territorially. Fourth, he will rule thievishly. Verse 15. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants, female servants, the best of your young men. We've already seen this. Your donkeys. He'll put them to his work. Verse 17 repeats the language. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. The tenth of, the tenth of, used repeatedly. And the language of slavery, this is oppression. The end of verse 17, you shall be his slaves. His abed is the Hebrew word. The people will become the king's slaves in bondage, in an abusive fashion. I mean, really, verse 17 is the climax of God's warning to Samuel concerning the tendency of kings and all oppressive governments, that the Israelites and all of their possessions are subject to the king's use. That's the point. And in our day, it's our property, our money, our words are subject to the king's use. We have to say the right thing the right way, or we may offend someone, politically correct. Our right to assemble as the church, which is granted in the First Amendment, That's not our right. That's the right of the state. Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That's the law of God. The result of this is oppression, not by a foreign oppressor, but domestic. This is exile and captivity in their own country. Or, if you want to say, in your own homes through a pandemic. It's the loss of political, social freedom which ultimately leads to the loss of religious or spiritual freedom. Let me quote Doug Wilson again. He says, and I quote, When Samuel warns the people against anointing a king like the other nations have, he warns them of the consequences to their property. It is reasonable to worry about the pickpockets in town, but wise men worry about another set of men, namely rulers, who will rise to the pinnacles of hubris, claiming to be equal to God and deserving a tent. Later on in 1 Kings, the people pleaded with King Rehoboam, Your father made our yokes heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us. Well, you can imagine why. Oppressive governments, like the one coming to Israel, have a depraved tendency to cause pain, not pleasure. They will rule tyrannically, tactically, territorially, thievishly. Now note the... Verse 18, they will rule theocratically. This is a cry for freedom because of the oppression. Verse 18, and in that day you will cry out because of the oppression, because of your king, because of what he does, whom you have chosen for yourselves. In other words, God says this timing of getting a king was not my idea, it was your idea. But the Lord will not answer you in that day, in the day that you cry out. Interestingly, the King James says hear instead of answer. In other words, he will not hear. They were deaf to his warnings, so God will be deaf to their crying. That's the point. 
He's going to discipline his people. When Corey and I first got married and first began parenting, when Gracie came along, I remember a, a younger couple who was a little bit older than us in our church sort of showing us the ropes and helping us understand how to raise godly children and, and all of those sorts of things. And they, they gave us um, some advice. They said, when your baby is crying in the middle of the night, resist every urge to get up and get that baby. And of course, the response is, well, that seems mean and calloused. But the answer is that you are disciplining that baby so that that baby doesn't become a sort of distraction in your own life. That there is a sense in which it is good to let the baby cry, to have and maintain the discipline of sleeping on its own. And in the same way, God says in verse 18 through Samuel, He's going to let the baby Israel cry. She's going to cry it out. She's going to regret the request. And God is not going to answer it. By the way, God had answered the request of the people when they called out to him before. Back in chapter 7, Samuel took a nursing lamb, verse 9. He offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him, gave victory over the Philistines. But here God will give no victory. Zechariah 7.13, as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if God had planned all along to give Israel a king, the question naturally arises, why is he so negative about that here? The short answer is that all governments are theocratic. Israel is not alone. In other words, the state without God becomes theocratic. It's just theocratic in the neo-pagan sense. The word theo or theos means God. The state will worship the God of the Bible or the God of the state. Quoting Wilson again, and I quote, All societies are theocratic with the only thing distinguishing them being the nature and attributes of the reigning theos, or God. Wilson goes on to say, Secular nationalism recognizes not the authority above, or it recognizes not authority above itself, and hence it is in essence idolatrous. But Christian nationalism recognizes a transcendental power and authority over the nations, an authority that is before time, above history, and entirely outside of the world. See, the issue here is that the people could either be slaves of God or slaves of government. The biblical categories would be slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, or slaves of Christ. True liberty is found in Christ, in our hearts individually, in the church covenantally, but here in the people's lives collectively and even nationally. But they desired a king. This is illustrated in the 1600s. The battle for liberty was between the crown and parliament, and parliament was right. But in the 1700s, the battle for liberty was between parliament and the colonies, and the colonies were right. You're going to have a theocracy one way or other, another. It can be a theocracy that is marked by the crown rights of King Jesus or that of a secular government. The point here is that Israel was impatient. If they had waited simply 12 more years, guess what king they would have gotten? David. 
a man after God's own heart. But what does the Bible tell us in Genesis? God makes it clear that his rule on earth would be accomplished through a vice regent. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the dominion mandate. He told Adam and Eve to have dominion. Of course, man failed to execute this because, among other things, Adam allowed the serpent um, to infiltrate the garden by the slithery, slithery enticement of the serpent who came in. He didn't cast the serpent out. And so what does God do? He casts man and woman out of the garden. But there was that promise in Genesis 3 that from the seed of the woman, all of creation would be rescued. And that's what we read about in Romans chapter 5, the second Adam accomplished redemption, and redemption or salvation is full-orbed. It is personal, it is creational, and it is cultural. You could even say political. Because of sin, Romans 8.23, creation itself groans awaiting redemption. Every relationship suffers from tyranny. You'll see husbands tyrannize their wives. Sometimes wives tyrannize their husbands. You'll see people in the church, Diotrephes, 3 John, we just looked at it a week ago, tyranny in the church, tyranny in the state, dominion because of depravity can morph into domination. Dominion and domination are not the same. Tyranny is domination. Dominion is what God calls for. But Tyranny is exploitation and oppression. And throughout the Bible, we have snapshots of how bad depravity is. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only wicked continually. But throughout, even though Adam and Eve failed, there were snapshots of kings that would come. For example, Abraham demonstrated a kingly role by rescuing Lot from a network of kings who had captured Sodom. And God had made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17 saying that he would be the father of many nations. From Abraham would come many nations, not just one nation. A clear reference to the fulfillment of the creation mandate. There was a king who was coming. And then as we read in Genesis 49, we read uh, the words of Jacob that a ruler of Judah would come. And Judah is described as being pictured as a lion, which is the universal symbol of kingship and monarchy. Then you go to the book of Numbers. A star would come out of Jacob, referring to this ruler. And then finally, in Deuteronomy 17, poised to take the promised land, Moses addresses Israel and he speaks about the fact there is a coming king. But before he does that, he speaks of judges, he speaks of priests, he speaks of prophets. Because power was limited with office holders and power was distributed across offices to form Israel's leaders. As one writer says, the laws work together as the constitution of the nation. Thus, power was not concentrated in one office, but authority was found in a number of offices based on the authority of the law of God. The offices of prophet, priest, and and king. If you remember, at Sinai, Israel became a nation, and the idea of a king was hinted at, but there was no requirement to have a king for there to be nationhood. The Israelite king 
was not to have absolute power. He was to share in all the administration of the law of God. He was subject to the law himself. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 says he should carry a copy of the law of God with him and not neglect it. But in Deuteronomy 17, turn back there just for a brief moment, because this is a critically important passage. Moses addresses the temptations of a king that he will want maximum authority. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Moses says he must not acquire many horses for himself. What is this? This is the first qualification. That is, he must limit the size of his army. But what does God tell Samuel the king will do? He will take your sons away from you and have a vast army. Trust in an army over God was a temptation. It revealed a lack of faith. Exodus 15.3, the victory song of Israel. What does it refer to God as? A man of war. God is the one who gives the victory, so don't acquire many horses. Limit your army. Number two, don't acquire um, many wives. Verse 17, you say, why? Well, because many wives means treaties with other nations. That's the only way you got more wives as a king. You made a treaty with another nation. You got a wife, usually a daughter of a king. You brought her into your country, and she brought her gods with her. Don't acquire many horses. Don't acquire many wives. Number three, don't acquire excess in gold or silver. The end of verse 17. Why? Because it's a perpetual issue. More wealth means more conquering, means more money, which means larger armies, which means more treaties, which means more wives, which means more gods. Which means you will take as a king and not give. And when this result is not heeded, Deuteronomy 17, 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel, so that his heart won't be lifted up with pride. There would be a great temptation to establish a seat of centralized power, a massive bureaucracy, meeting supported by taxes, That is what Scripture prevents with civil governments from the very beginning. To become more important than anything else means that power easily corrupts. And can I quote Lord Action, the British historian, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So why did God demonstrate such negativity to the request of a king Not because he despised the office of king, but because he had the right to define what that meant. And the true king would be Jesus, who, by the way, risen from the dead, fulfills all the offices of prophet, priest, and king. He is the ultimate monarch. He is the ultimate office holder. And he doesn't have a heavy yoke. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You want the state? you get a heavy yoke. You want King Jesus? The yoke is light. If they would have waited 12 years, they would have had David, who was a picture of Christ. But Samuel was too. Samuel's birth ended Hannah's barrenness, but it was also an answer to Israel's spiritual barrenness, wasn't it? Her 
physical barrenness was not just personal, it was national. And her personal blessing, because she kept her word and dedicated Samuel to the service of the Lord, became a national blessing because Samuel was a godly leader. In fact, the language used to describe him is language that the New Testament uses to describe Jesus. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. He was a picture of Christ. He grew up in the temple. His words were fruitful. They didn't fall to the ground. There was national blessing. And now the elders come and ruin it. They ruin it. Why? Because the elders had an issue of pride too. And they wanted some of the power. Well, the path to the request and the pain in the request leads us finally to the punishment from the request. And we've already sort of alluded to it. But just note with me in verses 19 through 22 that the people dig their heels in. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. That implies that he came to, him and came to them and said, you ought not do this because your attitude isn't right. But notice they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. And notice the reason why, verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. There it is again. We want to be like the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, wait a second. I thought God already did that. What about Jericho? What about the day that the sun stood still? The Bible describes that day by saying there has not been a day like it before or since for the Lord fought for Israel. What about all that talk about God being a man of war? Israel no longer wanted the Lord for their warrior. Their enemies were so close and it seemed God was so far away in heaven. But listen to this. This was how they rejected God. They did not just give up their liberties. They also gave up their protection because they gave up God as their warrior. And they got what they asked for with David There were many wars, much bloodshed, ultimately leading to a divided kingdom. But here they're like a child, a temper tantrum. They can't even put an argument together to defy it. They simply say in verse 19, no, but there shall be a king over us. So verse 21, when Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Samuel is so burdened by this, he goes back privately in prayer to the Lord and it's as if he's whispering in God's ear, can you believe what they have done? Verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. In other words, God sent them home with their punishment on the way. They would have waited 12 years, they would have gotten David, a king of mercy. Instead, they got Saul, a king of tyranny, king of pride. David was a king after God's own heart. But here God gives Israel their just reward. Saul, because of the foolishness of their own hearts. And what was the first negative consequence in asking for a king? I'll summarize this for you. Saul, like the people before him, demonstrated impatience. He offered a sacrifice to God before Samuel arrived. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 13. This is the civil sphere placing themselves in the business of the church sphere. 
Saul was rebuked for that. The civil sphere interfering with the state sphere, offering a sacrifice he ought not have offered. But then in 1 Samuel 15, Saul doesn't follow the battle plans of the Lord against the Amalekites. God said, devote everything to destruction, even the king. And Samuel comes along and he hears the bleeding of sheep and he says, what what do I hear? I thought God said to slay it all. Oh, Saul says, Samuel, yeah, I'm going to offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. You have sinned against God. And what did that do? Well, before we saw the civic realm stepping into the ecclesiastical sphere, but here as a demonstration of what shouldn't have happened, Samuel hacks Agag to pieces, the prophet. He wasn't a warrior. This wasn't the job for a priest. So now you have the church doing what the state should have done. Before you had the state doing what the church should have done. And all of it was the fault of the state, not of Samuel, not of the church. And so Samuel tells Saul that because he rejected the word of the Lord, God will reject him. Notice 1 Samuel 15, verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. In other words, that was what he had coming to him. Just as the people rejected God and asking for a king, God now rejects the king they asked for. And it really ends badly. Saul began his reign in battle. It ends in battle. He's so desperate and so far from God at the end of his life that he goes and seeks the wisdom of a witch. He goes into battle and is fatally wounded along with his sons. He falls on the edge of his sword, dying tragically. He is the first representative of a human government elected by the people of God that proved to be a failure of what a true king should be. And his death is a testimony to the reality of God's posture toward an oppressive, ungodly state. You say, well, what is the big lesson? Well, please hear me out on this. The lesson is not ungodly anarchy. God is not honored by that. We're to pay our taxes. We're to submit to our leaders. Not ungodly anarchy, but godly strategy. Stories told one time of President John F. Kennedy during the Cold War. He left a meeting with a bunch of people and he whispered to one of his advisors, I'd rather my kids be red than be dead. And by that, He didn't mean he wanted his children to grow up and be communists. He didn't mean he was going to sit back and do nothing. He did a lot to end the Cold War. But what what he did was, in saying that, he was simply expressing his heart that any sort of rash decision could be fatal. There is a strategy given to us. We'll close with this, Matthew chapter 28. The dominion mandate is given in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. But there's another mandate given by Jesus, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There's three spheres, the home, the church, and the state. This is the fulfillment of the dominion mandate, the Great Commission. And it begins really in the home. We're to baptize the nations. What does that harken back to? That harkens back to the home. It harkens back to the concept of the baptism of covenant children. And all that goes with that, the raising of those children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the weapon of the home is the rod. We discipline our sons and daughters. We, we discipline them and protect them. We raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We protect them from state catechizing. We give them the gospel. What about the church? The church is also implied in Matthew 28. What is the weapon of the church? The weapon of the church is the keys. The weapon of the parents in the home is the rod. The weapon of the church is the keys. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, verse 20, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And what do the keys represent? They represent the authority of God when someone within the church is not submitting to the commandments of God and all that Jesus taught, you put them out of the church. This is a reminder of the purity of the church. What's the application? Join a biblical church. Join God's army and seek the purity within. And then third, the state. The state's weapon is the sword. How do we handle the state? Well, we handle the state in what Paul tells us as he wrote to Timothy. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the godly strategy. This is not anarchy. This is patience. It involves the home, the church, the state, the fulfilling of the Great Commission. First, here it is simple. Get your house in order. Second, see that your church's house is in order or that you're part of a church whose house is in order. And third, the state will follow. Revival begins in the home. It seeps into the church. It overflows into society. That is the result of the Great Commission. It's not the laws of God that bring the kingdom of God on earth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And where the gospel is preached, where the spirit of God calls his elect and indwells them by the Holy Spirit, there is a liberty now not to live any way you want to live, but to live according to the ways of God's law. That sort of reformation and revival is needed, but it doesn't begin necessarily by being an activist or running for office. It begins where you're at now in your own home, with your own children, with your own responsibility, in your own church, in your own community. It begins with the simple, not the complex. And then collectively, as God's people do their part, as individuals, we know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. And so we pray that His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So goes the home, so goes the church, so goes the nation. That is the application of 1 Samuel chapter 8. It all went wrong in the home. Samuel's sons ended up ungodly. That's what prompted this whole thing. Get our homes right. Get our churches right. Society, by God's grace, 
by the power of His Spirit, will be influenced by the gospel. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, even in the Old Testament. As we look at this story of Israel through the elders seeking a king, we see your negative posture toward it, not because you were against them having a king, you prophesied that, but because you were against them having a king in the way that they wanted one, not according to your timetable, and a king that would not operate according to your methods. It's a stern warning to us of the nature of tyranny and oppression and exploitation. Father, as the one true and living God, we beseech you this morning that we would be a pure people, a holy people that seeks to honor you, that seeks to honor your kingdom, that seeks to honor the lordship of Christ in all of our attitudes and all of our opinions regarding politics and culture and all the rest. May our confidence be in the gospel. And so we turn now to the Lord's Supper, a reminder to us of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate the victory that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. So bless our time as Brother John plays this, this hymn. May we follow along that great hymn, number 281, Jesus Paid It All. May we follow along. If we know the words, may we... Recite them in our hearts as a prayer to you before we partake of this supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.